Welcome, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. On today's episode, we'll be discussing streamlining your patient education in preparation for discharge. Mike, tell us a little bit about why we decided to do this topic and why we felt like it was important. Yeah, so I think that there, there's a, a few things that I think will be good to touch on today. First important thing is understand where you think that the patient might get to and then set goals accordingly, determining what's going to be the thing that you really want to go after with your treatment, whether it be pain or function or both, uh, and then setting your goals accordingly. Right. And I think for me, and I think probably for you, since you were doing the internal traveling as well, is I've seen a lot of patients that other clinicians started their plan of care. And sometimes these patients have been seen for 20 plus visits or longer. They've been coming for months and months. It seems like they've plateaued or they've kind of reached their maximum potential with therapy, but they're very resistant to discharge. So I thought it was important to touch a little bit on how that patient education from day one and throughout the course of care is going to make the breakup a little bit easier, but at the same time, help the patient understand why they're in therapy and how they can take what they learn from therapy to help them throughout their entire life. I think as clinicians and as professionals, we need to really start setting up a paradigm and an education scheme throughout the entire plan of care that emphasizes these points so that we can really change how people view us and how people view the profession. And really starting off by setting up a paradigm or an idea of treatment that advocates for self-efficacy, understanding what they're doing, why they're doing it, and promoting active participation in the treatment. That way, when it comes time for discharge, even if they're only, let's say, 80% better, they know how you make decisions when it comes to progressing treatment in the realm of load management strategies. So Mike, what patient education would you say that you use on day one to help construct a plan of care with discharge in mind? Probably the, the easiest thing to do is do your evaluation, figure out some things that you want to treat, and then have a conversation with that patient. Okay, here's the things that I found that I think that physical therapy can help with. Um, so we're going to target our interventions around those, and then we'll monitor them for improvement. We'll, we'll monitor maybe a subjective questionnaire. So what do you say to the patient that has a legitimate pathoanatomic injury, the physician sends them to PT first, and they basically say, I'm only here because I have to fail PT before I can get X surgery. What kind of education are you setting up with those individuals to help plan for discharge? Because even at the end of the day, once, let's say their pain's down 50%, they're stronger, they have more motion, but they say, well, I still have two or three out of 10 pain, I'm going to get the surgery. So, so what are you doing to help them understand the plan of care? I mean, that ties back into the conversation we've had on a lot of podcasts, right? Where, you know, your pathology or what you see on an image doesn't always necessarily link up with, with pain and function. So I say, if your goal is to completely heal whatever you have going on, I can't necessarily say that we'll do that. So what I say is, is I, I kind of explain the, the thinking behind why they got sent to PT, right? So... Our goal in here is we're going to start just by working on the goal of decreasing your pain so you can do a little bit more. Um, and then we'll try and get that joint muscle, whatever, working uh, as well as possible. But I think also giving them realistic expectations of surgery too um, helps potentially get a little bit more buy-in. I think a lot of people have in mind that once they get the surgery, that they're fixed. 
And so explaining if you have a little more motion, a little more strength going into, into surgery or recovery afterward tends to be a little bit easier for you. We're a little bit less likely to, to, to run into hiccups along the way. And it'll help you get back to what you want to do quicker, even if you do need surgery. Most surgeries are going to be six-month recovery, give or take, anywhere from you know, four to nine months. Probably you're looking at least, um, no matter what the surgery is, until you're feeling pretty good with most people not really feeling like they're back to 100% until you know one to two years. That tends to be one of my education things. Like, look, even if you do get the surgery, right, we're not we're not out of the woods. You still have a long road ahead of you. So, with the fact that some people can avoid that whole process just by going through a you know six, eight, ten, twelve week bout of therapy, that generally tends to be where we start. Right. Yeah. So I think that's that's some good stuff to help get their brain wrapped around why they're there and, and why it's important. Things that I try to touch on are talking about precise controlled loading to get them out of that painful phase. So whether it's traumatic, they had a traumatic tear of a tissue or it's gradual onset. If their pain is elevated, I talk to them about how controlled loading early on is going to help get them out of that painful phase and decrease the sensitivity of the surrounding tissue in the nervous system. And then once they're out of that painful phase, I talk to them about how strengthening is going to build resiliency to the activity. So the main thing I try to communicate is that the actual tear of the tissue isn't what's causing them pain. It's the inflammatory process that follows that makes the nervous system more sensitive to mechanical stress and muscle contraction or stretch, whatever the stimulus might be. And once they can understand that the nervous system is the main reason why they're in pain and how controlled loading is going to help build resiliency, I think this kind of helps start that shift of the paradigm transitioning from okay, my tissue's torn, therefore I'm going to always be in pain versus, okay, if I can use exercise to calm things down and start to build strength and do my activity, then I can return to things that I used to be able to do and potentially not have pain. And then with those that have gradual onset, I really try to help them understand components of how brief periods of underloading with random events of overloading can generate new pain experiences. And my go-to example is if I go out and run a marathon right now and someone took an MRI the next day, I would have bilateral Achilles tendonitis, bilateral gluteal tendinopathy, I would light up an MRI machine just because my body and tissue resiliency isn't where it needs to be. I didn't train for this marathon. Whereas someone that gradually doses, gradually trains, could run a race, have some muscle soreness, but may not generate the same findings on MRIs as if they trained for it versus when I didn't train. Kind of hyperbole, but it's a good example to allow patients to understand how your level of conditioning at a certain period in time translates to whether you generate a painful experience through a stress overload. And then talking about different factors. So for example, if you're older, two or three days of lack of physical act may lead to accelerating deconditioning compared to someone in their 20s. It's why you can show up to the basketball court in your 20s and play a few pickup games and be a little sore the next day versus in your 50s, you don't play basketball for a month. You show up and you've got these aches and pains all over the place. And there are other reasons as far as increased nerve innervation into previously injured sites as a result from previous inflammatory responses. But again, I don't go that deep into the neuroscience. I really just try to help them understand about that level of conditioning and how spontaneous increases in their activity without the appropriate conditioning or appropriate level of fitness prior to engaging in those is what's going to generate those new pain experiences. So Mike, how do you discuss imaging with patients. You have that patient that walks into the evaluation, they've either got their report or they've got the MRI disc and they say, I, I want you to look at my imaging and tell me what you think. 
Yeah. So what I say is, I'm not good at reading MRIs. Uh, is how I normally lead with it. I said, um, if you have the report, I'll read that and that'll give me a good insight. And, you know, I'll maybe have my front desk or maybe, maybe I'll call over to the physician's office and have them fax it over. Normally what, what I tend to tell them is that it, it's just a piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of things that we're going to look at. Most people, especially when you're dealing with people in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s are going to have things on their MRI that don't look great. You know, we have an MRI that shows X, Y, and Z. I'll put you through some tests and kind of see if we kind of poke and prod those areas a little bit if, if they do seem to be the things that are causing pain or if they're just kind of random noise and, you know, take the MRI in, in, into consideration, but really see, see if, if we can, you know, clinically reproduce that pain. And that'll help give us a little bit more insight in, into how we can make you feel a little better. Right. I think that's a good thing to point out because if someone's deeply rooted in their imaging, but you can really do one of those symptom modification procedures like we've talked about in previous episodes where you can change their pain via biomechanics or scapular repositioning or whatever it might be, it really gives them a example of how in real time changes in movement, changes in force production, whatever it might be, biomechanics can influence what they experience. And I think changing what they experience in real time in the clinic in regards to changing biomechanics or scapular position is going to help them see how what we contribute from a movement perspective can really influence their pain experience. And if their imaging dictated what they experienced, then it would be constant regardless of what we did. So I think being able to demonstrate how changing their movement can change their experience can really help get some buy-in early on. As far as the imaging goes, I really try to read my patient and I try to understand where their belief system is because each individual is going to have a very different belief system, previous experience, information from multiple channels, multiple sources. So if I see someone's deeply rooted in their belief of pathoanatomy, I don't try to educate too early. I feel like that's a big mistake as far as creating some early resistance with your patient is trying to convince them early on that what they're saying isn't true. So like you said, if they give me an actual disc where they want me to look at the image, I simply kind of repeat what you say. I'm, I'm not a radiologist. I don't think my opinion of your image is going to change my treatment much, but I will look at your report if you want me to look over it with you and explain to you the findings if no one has done that. And I can also explain to you the implications that the findings might have on treatment, even though a lot of the time some of these findings are just kind of there. They're not really relevant to, to what you're experiencing. And again, the reason is, is you can't see some of those changes that, that we talk about in regards to nervous system sensitivity, inflammatory biomarkers that are causing that peripheral hyperalgesia. There's a lot of things that don't appear on imaging that influence what you experience. So yeah. I really try to start making that connection between the pain science and loading paradigm that we've been discussing on previous episodes, and then seeing if I can maybe connect that to their imaging or their story. That's only going to work for gradual onset pain. Again, if someone's in acute trauma and they tore their rotator cuff, picking up a heavy box overhead or whatever it might be, then paradigm or the story that you tell has got to change. Saying your imaging is more of a footprint of how you've been loading. It's not necessarily the cause of, of your pain. It's switching that whole perspective on, on how they view their imaging is crucial. But I always try to fit the education when, within the constraints of their story and help them connect the dots as to, okay, your imaging might say this, 
But is the imaging really the cause or is that just a symptom of how you move, how you experience a very mechanical and physical world? And then I I really help them understand that loading component, that pain neuroscience component. But again, I try to do it all in simple to understand language. I time my education so that I'm not overwhelming them or trying to completely change how they view the world in one day. I think timing is crucial. And if you have someone that has a deep-rooted belief in pathoanatomy, I really don't over-educate until my exam's completely over. I listen to their subjective. I maybe give them a very general impression. Mike, what do you say to the patient that says, all right, well, you know, this is my diagnosis. I have a rotator cuff tear. You can do your exam, do your subjective, whatever you need to do. But I really just, I can't come to PT. I just don't have time for this. Just give me the exercises. I'll do these at home on my own. I think it, it's, it's really hard, unless it's someone that's a pretty low irritability type of thing, to really know how your treatment's going to look two, three, four, five, six visits down the road because everything's so variable um, with those people. Sometimes it takes a little bit to kind of hone in on the best exercises for them, what you think is going to work. So that's normally what I'll say. I'll say, look, I, I can give you exercises and they'll probably be decent, right? They'll probably help you out a little bit. But I, I'd like to get you back in here just so we can kind of reassess and make sure that we're, we're giving you the, the best stuff possible and make sure that there's not anything else that I want to add in or tweak. So no, normally I'll say, how about you, why don't you come back in, in like two weeks, run with these for a couple of weeks, see how they go, get back in, and then we'll be able to progress. And all I want you to do is just come back in and we'll, we'll do little progression visits. Um, and then in the meantime, just give a call if anything feels off and then we'll get you in sooner. Just kind of candid about like what my thought process is, right? And so this is why I want you to get back in. It's not so you can run through the exercises and so that we can make progressions or, or make changes if needed. Hopefully get you feeling pretty good long term. Right. Yeah. I think there are some patients where they are set in their mind that they, that's what they want. And those are the ones that are very difficult to, to confront. And you're right. It's, sometimes it's just not worth trying to change someone's mind who's already set in stone. And if anything, it's going to create a negative interaction for you and a patient, which who knows that patient might leave and come back two or three weeks later and say, hey, I didn't get better. Maybe I do need to come to twice a week. So I think having a less confrontational interaction in that particular case is, is beneficial just to maintain a good relationship with a patient and your community. Some things that I try to touch on as far as helping people understand why I'm recommending a certain frequency or whatever it might be is when I give my home exercise program on day one, I really try to cue them into the exercises and, and what they're trying to feel, what they're supposed to feel, and demonstrate how their compensatory strategies are preventing them from actually targeting and loading the areas that, that we're getting after. So a piece of education that I really try to start from day one is to emphasize that movement is goal-oriented. So what that means is your brain is going to find a way to do the appearance of the movement with what it has to work with at the time. Your brain doesn't really think in terms of muscle isolation. It thinks about completing a task or a goal. So the reason I bring this explanation up is when they're doing, let's say, a bridge, are they creating lumbar hyperextension and feeling it in their low back? Are they using their hamstrings rather than activating their glutes and driving through their hip? I think the bridge is just a great example because it's a typical day one exercise. And you're always going to get those patients that either say, oh, I feel this in my low back or 
I'm getting a cramp in my hamstring. So that's a really good opportunity, a really easy exercise to help them find the right muscle groups and demonstrate how if they don't focus and if they're not properly coached into certain movements, you may not necessarily be loading the areas that we want to target. And then another one is a great one is a clamshell. If you can get someone doing a clamshell the right way, that's one that patients tend to compensate with that trunk rotation. And if you can really educate them and show them how to load that lateral hip, that glute meat area, patients are honestly very surprised how that low level movement really causes a lot of muscle work, a lot of muscle activity. So once I can cue them into certain exercises and get them to load and target the areas that that I want them to load, then that helps me get a little bit of buy-in. They might start to say, oh, wow, I didn't realize that so much thought went into these exercises. And, And you're right, maybe I do need a little bit of coaching on how to find those muscle groups. And then the second topic that I try to touch on is dose. So what I tell patients is every time I give you an exercise program, it's not just a matter of doing the exercise and getting strong. I'm constantly monitoring how you respond to what we give you. So if you think about it, like a physician gives you a prescription for a a medication that's experimental, he's going to want to monitor how you respond to the dose of that medicine so that he can either one, adjust the dose or two, change the medicine that that you're receiving to make sure that you're responding in the ideal way and getting the, the ideal effect to the medication that they're prescribing. That same concept applies to us as far as the amount of loading, the type of exercises and the volume of exercise that we give you. So every time you're coming in for a visit, that's a prescription of loading and exercise. And depending how you respond to that prescription, each subsequent visit, I'm either going to adjust that dose those two conversations are important. One, reviewing how you need to coach them through the movement to load certain areas. If you're in pain, your brain's not going to want to load those areas. It's going to create compensatory strategies to avoid loading that, that sensitized area. And then two, talking about exercise as a prescription and our expertise in assessing their response to the loading and how that is going to dictate what exercises and at what volume and at what dose they perform them in the future. How do you tend to handle those patients that know their body pretty well and can realistically handle uh, managing their progression of of load pretty well on their own? How how does that affect your treatment and health and you get them in clinic? Right. So I think the most important thing for me is always patient values. That's part of our evidence-based practices. What does the patient want? What realistically fits into their lifestyle? And then again, there's economic factors or social factors as far as working a lot. So I think I really try to fit it within their life. But if they can make it to twice a week and that's what I think is best for them, I, I will recommend it. But again, you're right. Some of those patients are very in tune with their body. They can handle it. So if someone is adamant about once a week and I feel like maybe they need twice a week, but I'm going to agree to the once a week just because of social or financial constraints, then I really take my education to another level on the first day to help them understand. So I preface it, I say, okay, we will do once a week, but I think it's important for you to understand how I make decisions, how I progress exercises and what you need to look for on your own, just because I won't be there to give you advice as far as should I do more today? Should I do less? Should I take a day off? So usually what I say is these are the exercises that I want you to perform. Uh, You might be a little bit sore the next day, even a little bit of pain. When when you're in pain, especially moderate to higher ability, it's going to be a very blurry line between pain and soreness. So whether you're sore, whether it's pain the next day, that's going to be normal. So take the next day off. Do your normal daily routine, but don't feel like you have to do these exercises every single day. What you're going to notice is after you exercise, the next day you're going to 
feel almost a little bit worse. You're going to feel like, oh, I'm sore. I'm painful. Take a day or two off, depending on how sore or painful you are. Usually that soreness shouldn't last more than 48, 72 hours in, in worst case scenario. If it lasts more than 72 hours, you probably overloaded. I recommend that you come back to the clinic and set up a second appointment if that's the case. So I can take a look at your home exercise program and see if there's anything we need to change. But if you do dose it appropriately, this is what I recommend you start with. If you don't have any soreness the next day, you can bump up your rep count, your weight, whatever it might be. The goal is you want to be sore about 24 to 48 hours. Give yourself a day or two if you need it to recover and then get back to the exercise. And what you should notice is when you keep that dose the same, you won't be as sore or as painful the next day. And once you can complete that routine without any pain or soreness the next day, then that's when you progress the intensity, the volume, all those parameters, or even in certain circumstances, if you're early on, we might progress the difficulty and the actual exercises that, that you receive. Yeah, so um, we, we've kind of gotten, you know, off target of our kind of discharge conversation a little bit, but I'm curious how kind of along that same patient lines that you were just kind of talking about there, that person that kind of understands their body pretty well can probably handle their progressions on their own, at least to some extent. How does that affect your discharge recommendations and, and kind of how you're planning for discharge compared to someone that might not have that same kind of un understanding of their body? And how does it kind of change your treatment in order to get them to discharge? Right. So that education that I went through in the in the previous response, I think I would have that conversation with everyone at some point. I think someone that wants to do once a week, I typically have the conversation sooner because it's more crucial that they understand it if they're going to be progressing on their own. Those that I see twice a week, I start to sprinkle in that conversation as we go because I do try to transition my twice a week patients to once a week as they get deeper in their plan of care. And then I think that conversation as far as the load management, the dose progression, I'm having that conversation with them, not only in the context of their home exercise program, but in the context of their exercise program and exercise progression in the clinic. So when it comes time for discharge, they might be 90% better. And if we go back to that, that symptom irritability approach, they might be in the final phase of return to function. You're 80 to 90% better. You're doing all your exercises without me even cueing you to load or target what we wanted you to target. At this point, you're kind of in the conditioning phase. So I think we can discharge here. You can get that last 10% on your own. You know what to do. You've demonstrated good load progression because we've, we've been able to go down to once a week. So that tells me that you've got a better understanding of, of your load management, your load progression, how it influences what you experience. You've even learned how to periodize your, your training by taking those active rest days in between exercise days to allow for recovery. And I think if you can keep up with all of this education and all of the exercises that we've got you started on, I think you'll be in a good place. I think that entire education on day one and throughout the plan of care sets up that final conversation where if they really understand you end up kind of bringing down their barriers and, and eliminating that resistiveness to, to discharge. Yeah, I agree. I think that brings up something that we should be talking about uh, with our patients with, you know, kind of keeping that discharge in mind from, from day one is our goal is not to make them feel better in the moment, though that is important a lot of times when they're in a lot of pain. It's nice if we can give them a little bit of temporary pain relief, but our main goal is to make them feel better long term. I think most of that is going to come down to good, consistent education throughout the process as to what the goals of our exercises are, kind of where where our decision making is, is coming from, and then educating them on your load progression, your 
how to increase activity, how to decrease activity. If you're a little bit flared up, here's a couple of things that you can do if this flares up. Things along those lines, I, I think, are all, are all really important. And, you know, I think education throughout our treatment needs to all be geared toward discharge, I think, I think is, is super important. Definitely. And I think assessing the expectations of your patients is going to really help you build that that narrative and pick and choose what education you decide to use at what time. So one thing that I've noticed a lot of patients have is they have this expectation that if I'm healthy and I have nothing quote unquote wrong with me, I should be able to do anything that I want at any time and not get pain afterward. So this is, for example, a 70 year old woman who says, I used to go out and wash my car all the time. And now I go out and wash my car and I'm in pain everywhere. And we'll ask her, okay, well, when was the last time you washed your car before for this recent time? She goes, well, you know, it was winter. I hadn't washed it all. I hadn't washed it all winter. So as soon as it got nice out, I went out and I washed my car. And I, and I asked her, okay, well, what exercise have you been doing to keep your body in a level of fitness before you went out and did that? She goes, well, well, nothing. It was winter. I just kind of stayed inside. And I try to help kind of guide them into that understanding of as you get older, your level of deconditioning as far as bone loss, muscle mass loss, whatever it might be, is accelerated. And if you don't do the things to prep your body to do those spontaneous things that at one time seemed trivial, but now can be the tipping point between a experiencing pain and and not being in pain, you have to be ready at all times by having an exercise program to keep you at that level of conditioning. So I think those difficult patients are are tough because their expectations don't really match reality. And then at the same time, they've been ingrained with this pathoanatomic medical model for so long that they almost think if there's nothing wrong with my body, I can do whatever I want at any time without having pain. And it's just simply not true because we know now that everything fits within this loading paradigm as far as where is your load tolerance in the moment and how much load are you putting on your body at a given time versus your level of fitness and load resiliency. So those are important conversations to have. And then Mike, what do you do with the difficult patients who you go through the plan of care, you know, you do everything with them, but they're still in pain? How do you deal with this situation? Yeah, I think some of that starts with some of that day one education that we talk about and setting realistic expectations. I think talking to them early on about what what are some of their kind of realistic goals. Our main goals are going to be to obviously get your pain down. Think that your best bet is going to be getting on a good exercise program and using that to help you at least able to do all the things that you want to do, even if there is a little bit of residual pain uh, that, that kind of hangs out even after we get done. Um, and I think also having a good mix of okay what what are what are our function goals what are the things that we that you that you want to be able to do that you're that you're not okay with the fact that you can't do them right now or you're not okay with the level of pain that you're experiencing while trying to do that and kind of making those some of our target goals and assess our progress toward them but i think you know setting them the expectation that okay i'm here to kind of get you going on the right track you've had this you've had this pain in your back or shoulder or knee for eight years or whatever the heck it it may be we're not going to get it to go away in you know two months of pt and and we're likely not going to get it to go away all the way no matter what even with surgery there's a good chance that you're still going to have some residual pain but you know we'll kind of we'll kind of work in the right direction and then when, when we get you out of here i'll give you some stuff that you can kind of continue on your own at home keep things feeling as good as they possibly can moving forward and i've, I've had i think pretty good responses to that i, th- I think that patients appreciate the honesty I, I think that most people have fairly realistic expectations right that they're, they're they're not expecting to be in zero out of 10 pain 
Right. Yeah. I think that kind of touching on a common theme is assessing their expectations, having truthful conversations, trying to educate as much as you can to help them understand this new paradigm and new way of thinking as far as taking into account pain science and, and load management. I think for those individuals, I really try to find every detail. I'm a really firm believer in, in looking at every detail in, in the patient's world and trying to optimize everything we can to improve their probability of success. Especially with chronic pain, I really talk about what's, what I consider I, I label as a therapeutic loading window. So that's the, the lower levels and higher levels of a particular intensity of loading that's therapeutic before you overload and becomes noxious or creates an inflammatory response. So I think with these chronic pain individuals, the, the difficulty as far as us as clinicians is finding that, that therapeutic loading window. It's very narrow where if you underdose, they won't get the benefits, but if you overdose, they're, they're worse off. And that, that margin of error becomes very, very narrow. So I think that's something that I discussed with them early on as far as the individuals that have chronic pain is early on, this could potentially make you more painful. I tell them you may have a little bit more pain after PT, or you may just be the same and not, not feel any difference. And the reason is, is we really have to work together to find that therapeutic loading window to make sure that we're finding a therapeutic dose of exercise. So that's a conversation that I have with those particular patients, especially if they're not progressing within those first three to four weeks. And then there's individuals that have very severe pathoanatomy where, again, pathoanatomy is not relevant to the pain experience, but it is relevant to the biomechanical and loading properties of certain joints based on what their role and function is. And then I look at activity modifications outside of therapy. I've had a lot of patients where I feel like I'm hitting the dose right, I do everything right, and then they come out of left field and say, oh, well, I've been gardening for two or three hours a day just like on my knees or in a deep squat position prolonged static loading through the the knee joint and i basically say listen the activity and loading prescription as far as dosing appropriately is not only related to what we do in therapy but it's related to everything you do outside of therapy so maybe for a week or two hold on that activity let us load you into a posi position of higher resiliency and then we'll gradually load you back into whatever activity you want to do on your own but if you think that just coming here and getting the right exercises, but not looking into your load management is going to help you, it may not necessarily give you the benefit that you're looking for. And then I always look back at myself as far as, did I progress exercises too quickly? Are we overloading them within their program? Um, sometimes I know personally, I felt pressure, especially when I was first starting off in PT, where they've been coming for three weeks, they're doing bridges, clams, whatever it might be. All right, they've been here for two or three weeks, we've got to progress. The progression was very based on time and pressure, where I felt like, okay, they've been doing a, a double leg bridge. Maybe the exercises just aren't hard enough for them. That's why they're not getting better. Let's make them harder and progress them to single leg bridge or whatever it might be. But then I realized that it was had nothing to do with me not progressing the exercises. It had more to do with their actual overall load management. There was things outside of therapy. I wasn't coaching them as much or appropriate, appropriately as I should so that they were loading the areas that we were targeting or that were sensitized. So sometimes I've, I've come to tell patients, hey, you can come for six weeks and do the same exact exercises every single time. If you don't practice these at home and acquire the form to load the areas that we're trying to target, you're going to do the same exercises every single time until until we get them right. Just because if we progress, you'll be able to do the movements. You can physically, you're physically capable, but you're going to do them with compensatory strategies and you're not going to get the benefit if we're not targeting the areas that we're trying to load. And I almost compare it almost to uh, positions in yoga. I always tell my patients, I want you to think of all these exercises like positions in yoga. The better you get at the position, the better you get at the form of these exercises, the more 
success you're going to see because you're going to be better at targeting and loading the areas that we're trying to to load. Yeah. So how do you um kind of shifting from your patient education? How how do you how do you phrase that argument when you're speaking with maybe a therapist that's more heavy into kind of your you know ignoring perfect functional patterns and just you know ignoring your perfect form with a bridge and just getting them squatting because squatting is going to get good glute activation and we can't selectively choose muscles and you know narrative that that you see pan on social media everywhere what would be your conversation with that person yeah so i think it's important to address that i'm not necessarily using the form to perfect movement i'm using it more for targeted loading so let's say that your SI region is the area that's involved or you have, let's say, low back pain. So they've done a study where they did intraarticular injections to the actual pelvic region around the SI joint, around the hip. And what they demonstrated is after that intraarticular injection, they had arthrogenic inhibition of the surrounding musculature. And that's, that's your glute musculature. So this concept of arthrogenic inhibition, just like you would get after a surgery or after any trauma or pain process, can in theory be extrapolated to every joint. If there's a pain process, you're going to get surrounding inhibition of the musculature. So again, it depends on their irritability. If they're low irritability, moderate irritability, yeah, let's get them squatting. I'm not worried about their glutes being asleep during a squat. As long as you get the right biomechanics to force glute activation or glute recruitment, you're going to get the glutes. So it's not like I'm trying to wake up sleepy glutes, quote unquote. It's more of I'm trying to load an area that's sensitized. And the bridge just allows me to do a controlled loading via a gluteal contraction. So it's less about waking up a sleepy glute. It's about turning on the musculature around the painful area to provide a controlled dose of loading to the area. Yeah. I guess what I would counter to an individual who says that movement quality is not very important is under normal variability, I would say it's not. But depending on the sensitized state of a certain region, it can influence what the patient experiences. So for example, if you're doing a squat or let's say sidesteps and they have that that low back pain that we described earlier where they're hinging and, and increasing their posterior facet loading because their abdominals aren't activated. These are your patients or even your individuals who when they do squats, they're going to get that paraspinal tightness because those paraspinals are sitting, sitting in that shortened position. So I think changing movement in regards to what the patient's experience experiencing is is valuable and even the bridge for teaching hip extension with abdominal activation is beneficial as far as getting their brain wrapped around what they're supposed to be feeling why they're engaging certain muscles during certain movements in the context of their personal experience not to say that everyone should move the same it's more to help them exercise help them recruit musculature and start building a foundation for what they're going to be finding when they get into the other exercises yeah i think that's well said so what type of culture have we seen in regards to the duration of plans of care and how do you deal with patients who just want to keep coming one thing is that you know you have to talk about that patient that's not getting better i think having having goals that you've set on day one kind of like what we talk about you have to kind of have discharge in mind whenever you're kind of going through your treatment you know what, what's going to be our criteria for discharge and so what we do is we kind of look at things that that are improving functionally strength-wise something that i can measure to say that you're getting better and so i think you you have to be able to for those patients that aren't getting better, that want to keep coming in, that you've seen for a while, you have to be able to tell them, I would love to keep seeing you, but it's hard for me to justify it. And here's why. 
right? Yeah, I think there's two patients that fit into this category. The first is going to be the ones that are getting better and just like to come. And then the other are going to be the ones that aren't getting better, but feel like it's their only choice and they don't want surgery and they just want to keep coming, keep pushing in, until they can get a breakthrough. So with the first group, I would say setting up that paradigm of self-efficacy, really transitioning them down to once a week, and then even saying once every two weeks, whatever it might be, try to wean them off is the approach that I would take. And then at some point, you just have to get stern with people and say, listen, we did our portion. What you're now going through has transitioned more into the realm of strength and conditioning, personal training. If you're interested in something like that, we can progress you to a gym specific program so that we can get you signed up at a local fitness club and you can keep up with this fitness program on your own. So I think that's the approach I try to take with those particular patients. And then for the ones who aren't getting better, but just want to keep coming because that's all they have and they are waiting for that breakthrough. I think as PTs, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and part of it can be ego and part of it can just be a lot of uncertainty regarding are we doing the right thing? Is there better things they can be doing? Really questioning ourselves and, and our expertise. I think a story that one of my mentors told me is very applicable in this particular situation is he told me you'll have 10 patients and of those 10 patients, three will probably just get better no matter what you do. Just with time, they're going to get better. There's another three where if you just exercise them, some people are just out of shape. They're kind of achy and sore everywhere. Just general exercise with those, they're, they're going to get better. That puts you at about 60% of your caseload. Then when those other three patients, you have to prescribe the appropriate dose, think outside the box, look at their biomechanics, really go above and beyond and, and be good at what you do to make sure that they get better. And that's going to put you at about 80 to 90%. So if you can be good at your job and pick the appropriate dose, know how to look at the biomechanics, do what you're supposed to do and just stick with your gut, you're probably going to be in that 80% range of getting people better. And then there's always that last patient that no matter what you do will not get better. So there's no point or purpose of trying to put that pressure on yourself of thinking that you're going to get every single patient better. So if someone isn't getting better, it may not be your job to get them better, but it is your job to figure out why they aren't getting better. So that comes down to thinking about, okay, do they have an underlying condition that's undiagnosed or not being currently managed that's influencing what they experience? Am I treating someone for low back pain, but they really have kidney stones? So so this is where that final patient really is going to give PT the opportunity to elevate itself above what it's been in the last few decades is those patients that see their PCP get sent to PT. We have to be able to pick up on these things that may not necessarily be PT related and get them to the right place. And those patients who aren't getting better shouldn't be seen as a burden on your caseload, but really as an opportunity to demonstrate the level of education that we've received with the doctor of physical therapy. So really look at your patients who aren't getting better not as burdens on your caseload or a stressful situation that you don't look forward to in the day, but really as an opportunity to dig deeper and demonstrate your level of knowledge. And then for the patient that has improved but has intermittent good or bad days, I think as long as you set up that loading and pain science paradigm that we've talked about in multiple episodes and in this episode, I think by the time they get to discharge, most people are going to understand why they have good and bad days as far as load management. And it makes that break up a little bit easier in the end. Yeah. I agree. All well said. I don't really think I have much to add to that. And then how do we have that discharge conversation? So this isn't necessarily a, a bad conversation. Just when, let's say you've had a successful episode of care, you're discharging your patient. What are some important things that you touch on to really position us as a profession in a good place to help and really promote physical therapy? The big conversation needs to be around where we got to with therapy 
and the things that they can continue to progress at home that'll help them feel better long-term. Just setting them up for success and ability to handle their condition long-term is going to be, I think, the most important part of that discharge conversation. Right. And I also like to use the discharge conversation to really help set up a new paradigm of how people perceive our profession. So one thing that I like to touch on is direct access. Early on, I feel like we like to tell patients about our level of education and direct access and all these great things about us. And we usually do it before we get the results. We like to say, look at all of this that we have, education, direct access, but the patient doesn't really care about us in the beginning. So I think at the end, once you've had that good interaction and you've got the buy-in, that's when you say, hey, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware, but if this problem ever returns or you feel like you have a new problem or even a family member that's dealing with any types of aches or pain, they don't have to go to their physician first. Just tell them to come on in and see us and we can get the physician to sign off on the plan of care or whatever it might be, depending on their particular insurance or if they do cash pay. But I really try to touch on direct access and say, just come in and see us first. We can help evaluate you. And if it's something that's not appropriate, then we'll refer you out. But I think this is a great opportunity to really educate and, and let our patients know about direct access because I feel like a lot of them just don't know. So once we achieve the results, we educate on direct access, let them know, hey, it was a pleasure working with you. If you ever need anything or a family member is dealing with aches and pains, you can come see us directly without a referral from a physician. I also take the time to let them know that I think it's beneficial that they come to PT at least once a year, twice a year for a biannual or annual checkup. And what that means is in the context of their life, let Let's say you're planning a trip to Yosemite and you're going to go hiking for seven days, but you're not at that level of conditioning. Come on in, let us screen you, let us give you some exercises, some things that we think are going to be beneficial as far as hiking goes, some single leg balance, some hip strength, whatever it might be, even just give you some guidance on how to progress aerobic and strengthening activity so you're ready for whatever it is that you're going to do. Or if you're, you've been working overtime at your job and you're doing a lot of overhead work and you're starting to feel a little ache or pain creep up, instead of waiting until it's something really bad, just come on in, we'll screen you, we can give you some preventative stuff and maybe just bill it as a cash-based injury screen with home program, however you want to quantify it. So I think to summarize, the two most important things to touch on for me on discharge is talking about direct access, trying to facilitate that new mindset where PTs can be primary contact providers for musculoskeletal pain, and then also promoting that annual checkup as far as prepping people for activities that they plan on engaging in in the future, or if they have a low-level ache or pain and they just want to have it screened and, and get a head start on it before it becomes something really bad. Yeah. So um, that's something that I'm sure we'll probably talk about a lot, kind of where we see PT kind of moving in the future. But so just real quickly, who were like kind of your, your main people that you'll kind of market that potentially like, you know, six month checkup to, because it's probably not going to be your active 28 year old right. type of thing. They probably don't need to go see their PT every six months. They probably understand their body pretty well. And if they, you know, if they want to, sure, but they're probably not someone that I would push to get in because they can kind of, if they understand their body pretty well, they can probably handle things on their own. You know, that, that may be more of like a specialized visit, but yeah, who, who are your people that you would really push that six months, you know, get back in here and we'll reassess too. 
Right. So there's two groups that come to mind. The first group is going to be your 35, 40 or older, still working, usually a little bit busier with their with their profession or with their occupation. And they have usually a either a physically demanding occupation or they're a weekend warrior. And they are more spontaneous and take on either like random races or random events or like to do more spontaneous activities. Or even if they're working and their load demand at work really dictates what they what they experience, they may have chronic low back pain from being a construction worker or whatever it might be, I really try to read those individuals and advocate that they come in at least annually. So just to recap, the individuals that have either high demand labor jobs, I try to advocate they come in annually just to get screened as far as are there any aches or pains that you're dealing with as a result of your job? What activities are you doing at your job that you notice are creating these low grade aches or pains? And let's look at some movement. Let's see how we can talk about some different movement strategies to help optimize your, your performance at work. And then on the other end, there's the weekend warriors, busy professionals that are 40 and above. And these are the ones that really pick up spontaneous activities. For example, they may have said, you know, I've been traveling all over the country for the last month, but work is starting to slow down and I'm starting to run again and my knees are feeling ache type of thing. So those those two populations come to mind for the annual. And then for the biannual checkup, I really advocate for my 55 plus. So for example, postmenopausal women, very high risk for vertebral fractures in the thoracic spine from increased thoracic kyphosis. So this may be someone who comes in for postural strengthening, thoracic mobility. And then I say, do this for about six months, come back, see me in another six. We can see how you're doing. If we feel like we need to start another program to get you back, we'll do that. Even for my balance patients, because a lot of the balance exercises, I really don't like to give at home. If you're going to challenge someone's balance system, they can't be holding onto a counter because when they go to fall, their instinct's going to be to grab something. They really need to work on those writing reactions. And this is kind of something that you see in the clinic is you might have someone in the parallel bars doing balance and their entire writing reaction is to reach for the parallel bars. So their entire balance exercise is kind of out the window because you're reinforcing that instinctive reach to react to a loss of balance. So I, I really do balance in free space, maybe standing in front of a table because I want the writing reaction to be a postural correction, not a reaching mechanism from their hand. Um, so that, that's one big thing that I really, really emphasize with balance patients is do your strengthening, maybe work on your balance at a counter, but the real effect you're going to get from balance are going to be in the clinic when you aren't able to create that that reaching reaction. You want more of that postural writing reaction. So I think balance and, and your 55 and above patients are, are really important for that biannual checkup. Cool. Yeah. And I think um, balance kind of touched on that. I think one of my favorite ways to prescribe it is I put them in a corner with some sort of fairly sturdy chair in front of them. Um, and that way they can work on there. That, that way, instead of using their hands to catch themselves, they go kind of side to side or backwards. They just kind of feel the wall. That's a right great there. idea. I like that a lot. All right. So Mike, close this out. Any final thoughts? Yeah. So I, I think the big things are, you know, whenever we're going through our treatment, it's important to, I think, set realistic expectations with our patients. We're not miracle workers. We're not going to get everyone's pain back down to zero and having that kind of come into play whenever you're setting your goals. I, I agree with everything you said there. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Really appreciate all your support. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's just going to help us build momentum, reach a broader audience so that we can really have good conversations, good discussions regarding improving quality of care and positioning our profession in a better position to, to be respected and understood as a whole in society. Thank you everyone for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.